Today's episode is brought to you by Joshua Ferris Real Estate. Real value, real results. It's real simple. California's famous Central Coast, from Montecito to Monterey, there are beaches, forests, mountains, and vineyards as far as the eye can see. And in the center of it all is San Luis Obispo County. Joshua Ferris, he's dedicated to highlighting the people of this community that makes Slow the greatest city in California. Welcome to the Slow Style Podcast. Hey, it's Joshua Ferris here. Welcome. I've got Michael Dunn in the studio. He has been a CEO and brand advisor for many top-level companies, and I'm excited to have him talking about luxury branding and marketing and where he sees the future. Michael, thanks for taking the time. Thank you, Joshua. If you could share real quickly about who you are and and a little bit of your history and why we're going to be talking about luxury, luxury service, luxury branding and marketing and just the history of that. Yeah. Like you, Joshua, I was a native son of the Central Coast, raised as a young boy in Morro Bay with a single mom and a brother. And within three blocks of where we lived, there was the Bay Theater. And my mother knew the owner and my little brother and I would get in if we picked up popcorn and wrappers in between shows, we could watch movies. Back then, they went one movie for six months at a time. So I probably watched Bush Cash Sennett's Kid a hundred times. And there was a little bookstore right there and there was a little art store. And in the bookstore, even when I was a young boy, I, I didn't have a father that was around all the time. So I would go in the magazine store. I would read GQ magazine, Vanity Fair magazine. I started getting that desire for luxury services then. And then I worked in government for a while And then my goal was to go to law school. But in law school, I got a part-time job working with this gentleman who was in the luxury leather outerwear business. And he needed someone to help him with that business. So while I was wrapping up and preparing for law school, I happenstance into the fashion industry. And man, I I loved it. We've got a a similar uh, background in that because I put myself through college working at Men's Warehouse selling suits. So I had quite a interesting uh, experience with you know luxury garment and the fashion industry in that way so and in a small town where there's not a lot of places to buy suits so you got to see doctors attorneys judges business people young people buying their first suit it really helps you read people and what motivates people on an emotional level that's really where that is so after a short stint in the fashion business where it's really like run like an advertising agency with inventory Right, You have to sell because in fashion, for the last 30 years or so, they don't really make anything. They design things. They source materials. They find factories, usually overseas, where labor is cheaper. And then they find skins in different places, and they put these things together and wrap it into a luxury brand. I learned how to do that really young, and I had a lot of success because while I was at UCLA doing this part-time work, I would study in the law school, and I would go to the business school and just ask the professor, hey, what do you think about this? And I'm talking to some of the best minds in business. And then I finally decided, you know, I only get to do advertising campaigns, everything on planes between sales calls. So I decided to go into advertising full bore. And I applied for all the big advertising agencies, but they basically said, yeah, we'll pay you what your travel entertainment budget is, um, you know, in the fashion business. So I finally found a firm that was more in direct marketing. Back then was the red-haired stepchild of advertising. I'm like, okay, well, I'll start here. That was great because I learned list segmentation, how to reach people, target. I saw most of the West Coast's major direct marketers came through our factory, and I saw what everybody was doing, and I just deconstructed it. And then I got a job 
at an agency that was mostly direct marketing oriented. They were basically print brokers. And I thought, I want to bring real advertising, what I learned in the fashion industry, into that. Uh, it was 1997 when I started, and it was in the Bay Area. It was ground zero for the explosion of what would happen to the internet. And so because I was naive and I didn't know how hard it was to run your own business, I thought, well, if they don't give me what I want, I'm going to start my own agency. Folding table and one person. But within six months, I had 25 people, and we were doing business with most of the big tech firms, most big financial firms. And then finally, my creative people are saying, Mike, this is boring stuff. You know, they won't let us take any creative things. We need clients that will get. So we started doing a little bit of fashion, a little bit of um, high-end wines. We did Robert Mondavi's rebrand for everything. And that's really how I got into the brand game. And I did that for three years. I sold my shares out because I, I just didn't like being a CEO. I like being with a group of peers, of people that are as good or better than me, and I can lead that team. So I just started doing management consulting with brand focused because advertising and marketing were getting pushed down to a line function and I was competing against the big global brands and when I couldn't compete with them, they would hire me and my team to do creative executions that were just outside of their major clients. And so I, then I became a management consultant and that's when I could really start working with some of the biggest and best companies in the world from Apple to Goldman Sachs to Microsoft to you know, you name the industry, I probably worked in it, from healthcare to biotech to pharma. Um, but I've always, since I was a little boy in Morro Bay, I always hearken back to what what do the wealthy people want and how do they how do they make? And then I learned all the strategies of why companies do that, why companies sell to the elite. And I've got a niche studying what they call ethnography, which is really going in and being an anthropologist. It's like, you know, people say a lot, so I watch what they do. And so we go in and we study human behavior, just like um, Jane Goodall did with the chimps. Jane Goodall told people, it's like, hey, we can study chimps in these cages, but it's different. Like, that's crazy, young girl, go away. And she went and did it and changed the way they did. That's how I've always approached marketing. I want to look at behavior of people and then go, oh, okay, this is what they need. And then using empathy, which is really kind of a way to use imagination, is what it's like to feel like that person and project it out. So I've been blessed to have worked with most of the world's, in some capacity, biggest luxury brands. So I think that's a great segue because I've always been fascinated by branding and marketing and not just having the end goal consumer or customer choosing what it is that they are picking out, right? What they're connecting with, but also having it, you know, be the opposite, right? So it's not necessarily the customer choosing the brand, it's the brand choosing the customer in a way. And so I was just curious when you're talking about branding and what makes an iconic luxury brand. And, you know, I think of older brands typically with luxury, especially in the cars, as far as that's concerned. I think of Italy and I think of other places like that that kind of connotate luxury. What is luxury if you were to if you were to define it and then just talk through maybe the history of it and how it's been more accessible maybe in the last 100 or 200 years or how it's changed? That's a great question. And I too, even before I was in branding, I, I gravitated towards brands because human beings have become where they use brands in essence. It used to be in the 90s, they called it aspirational. So it's like, hey, what do I aspire to live? And whether you're looking 
at Restoration Hardware, which is it's it's a lower end luxury brand now. But people go, oh, I can see my home being like that, or I can see what my life is like driving this Audi or this BMW. It's not just to get from place to place. It condones status. It condones that I'm successful. Um, that's why people buy Mont Blanc pens. It's a $500 pen to sign, but people who know know. And so in the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, where everything changed, so people lived in cities, small villages, you usually knew about 150 plus people, and you knew the baker, you knew the shoemaker, you knew things like that. But the really wealthy people would hire silversmiths and other things. And those started doing marks on them because um, Paul Revere was a silversmith back in the late days. Mm -hmm. And he had a mark, and his mark, when it was on a similar teapot, was more valuable because people knew how much he did. That was really the start of brands. And then when markets and grocery stores came in, people would come in and they would buy some oats. They would buy some of this. They would buy some of that. But in the UK and in the United States back then, they started saying, well, if we put this in a package with a brand on it, whether it's Special K, Quaker Oats, your local regional dairy, people will start to gravitate towards that. And in essence, that brand becomes the spokesperson in sales for that. So it's just evolved. Luxury brand has spent hundreds of years and decades turning design, aspiration, high quality goods into a $380 billion global behemoth. The pandemic recently changed that for a few months and everybody was afraid, but it also made some winners, made Zoom a winner, made Peloton a winner, ultimately then a loser because they couldn't handle the supply chain. So what a brand is, in essence, it's a vessel of trust for people. They know it's like, oh, this brand stands for this. I align with that brand. If I get that brand, it says this. Apple, you know, is a tech brand. And they used to make ugly little beige boxes like everybody else when it came out. But they were always on the high price because they had graphical user interface. And Steve Jobs was not a technologist. He hired technologists. He was really an artist, and he said, we need to simplify this, which Google took a page of us. Let's make it simple. So luxury brands, in essence, connote more than just quality of product. But if you look at you know, luxury brands in the last 10 years, Louis Vuitton and some of those, they're, they're huge, right? They do Louis Vuitton-type keychains and things to get kids involved because they know that LVH. But if you take really ultra-high net worth individuals and families... That's a low-end brand for them. They wear Brioni suits. They wear Piana, you know, knitwear. That's $4,000 for, like, an outer shirt. Because the ultra-wealthy people know what that is. And if you're not dressing and acting like them, you're an outlier in their tribe. That's why so many salespeople, as you are, and especially realtors like you are when you make, they spend a lot of money on cars. They'll get a Cadillac SUV leasing it for $4,500 a month because they want that luxury experience. They'll outfit their cars like the best Uber drivers with waters and everything because they say, this is what I want my buyers to expect about my service the entire way. Those little brand notions act as a cue for what people will get. That's how brands work. The brands are really a cheat sheet for making decisions in a hard world. I think that's a great phrase, a cheat sheet for making decisions in a world especially with a lot of decision possibilities. And I think especially in the last hundred years, we talked about how people lived in villages and they didn't interact with people outside of the area as much. That brought me back to a very interesting discussion that I watched last week about surnames and how, according to this lady who was presenting this information, she said that during the Black Death, 
that's when surnames really became more popular because there was a low low labor amount. And so the villagers would move from village to village. And before it would be, you know, Bob the cobbler or uh, Jerry the blacksmith, or just say. And then they were moving to other areas and interacting with more people because of the labor shortage. And so there's a more important component to differentiation. And the surnames really came into play, whereas before... The surname was really there in a way to brand the royalty or the, the barons or you know whoever it was that they needed to know who it was that they were speaking to because it was much more difficult to see somebody. There was no TV. There was no radio back then. So you had to figure out who you were talking to based on who they were introduced as based on their surname. Right? You, you and I both grew up in really small towns. Certain families in small town sometimes are troublemakers. The entire family. So if you drop a name and a family in a small town, it's like, oh, stay away from them. Be careful of them. That's a negative brand attribute. You know, other people's like, oh, that person's very successful. You should talk to them about that. We really use, and, and, and I believe, in personal brands. Personal brands used to be reputation. But now, the more people that know you and if they have positive, salient feelings towards you, you can have a personal brand. You and I have talked about that quite a bit. And you can monetize that personal brand. The more people know your ex and they and you make them feel a certain way. You know, most people in old school salespeople say, well, yeah, there's the logical brain and there's the emotional brain. That's all BS. I've studied all the brain science on it. People make decisions always on an emotional basis. They can't make decisions without emotions. And then they justify it to themselves later using kind of a deductive rationality, right? So you know as a salesperson, if you don't hit people in, in their emotions where they live then they just have trouble making those hard decisions. And you're in the business where when people purchase something and real estate's never been higher priced, it's never been higher priced here on the Central Coast with not a lot of jobs to support the income levels they need, they're very emotional, hard decisions. And your job is to guide them through that emotionality, ups and downs, negative aspects, positive aspects, and, and, and trying to keep them from making a bad emotional decision. Because you see, the best realtors aren't selling things. They're talking people out of bad decisions. And that's how I think the best professionals really build a reputation that they can monetize, which is a personal brand now, and that enough people talk, word of mouth, and they get that reputation that then they can monetize. That's a great point, especially as far as helping people make choices. I remember working at the men's warehouse with, you know, helping people choose their suits. And I didn't see myself as a salesperson. I saw myself as a consultant there to help them make the right decision for them, whether or not it was a $200 suit or a $2,000 suit. And there were some components that I would use to help them make that decision. But ultimately, everybody's different. I think in the same thing now as a real estate broker working with buyers is understanding what their goals are and helping them articulate those goals because not everybody knows what they're looking for. They may get a gist of it, they may get an idea, but to really understand what you are looking for and what really excites you, you almost have to get feedback from somebody else. So asking the right questions, really honing in on what when somebody gets excited about a home or a suit or a car or whatever it is, a watch, you can really tell, kind of going back to the motion, that really strikes a chord and it resonates with people. That's a word that I like to use, resonate, because you can really see when people get excited about something and you can communicate to that and say, hey, you know, I think you're really excited about this one. 
This may not be the one for me. It might not be the style that I like, but it doesn't matter. It's what the person that is searching that house or the suit is what they're wanting. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And, and, and when I've watched the best sales professionals that sell high-priced items, especially luxury items, and cost and price is always a component of luxury, I don't think that it's a measurement stick of luxury because luxury has changed. We can talk about that and define it. But the best professionals not only which look for excitement, but you know they also look for 70% of human communication is body language and intonation. And the best salespeople listen more than they speak. And they're looking, it's like, okay, this is what they don't like, even if they can't articulate it. And that's how marketing and, and branding is. And that's why also I listen to people, what they say. But if I ask you, why did you buy your car? Well, I bought it from this, this, and this. If I ask you, why do you fall in love with your fiance? You're going to have a really hard time because it's so buried in your limbic system of your brain, your amygdala and hippocampus, that you can't define that correctly. But as a professional, a professional at persuasion, which you have to be, which I am, then you need to look for unspoken cues of what lights people up and don't. And be smart, especially in a small community. You can make some bad deals in big communities and kind of hide amongst the chatter. You do that in a small community more than a couple of times. Your brand reputation is going to crash significantly. And some of the, the most well-known realtors here, they tout transactions, they tout volume, they tout the numbers, what they're doing. What they're not concerned with, and it, it usually bites them in the rear in the long run, is the emotions of pressure. I'm not immune to sales. I go to the state fairs and everything, and I come over here, and I'm buying a $400 Vitamix blender that I didn't need because I'm just so into that. But afterwards, I'm, I'm a little pissed off that he did it. He got me, and I won't do that again and, well, until the next time I do that, right? So we're all not immune to those triggers that we have to kind of self-regulate our ways out of. But if you're a professional marketing, selling, any kind of luxury products, you need to be careful and not foist them on people. The best luxury brands, you never see them on Facebook ads. You never see them much on per-click ads. I mean, it's $80 to do, like, what's the best car? $80 per click. Who can afford that? Maybe Elon Musk, you know? Probably the quickest luxury brand in automotive ever is Tesla. So you just have to be cautious about how you market and how you talk about luxury products. There's a great video that I watched about branding luxury where it talked about how, I think it was a car brand, they put their cars at aviation shows because they knew that people at the aviation shows that could afford, you know, having their private jets or having, you know, this kind of a luxury experience could afford their car or maybe it was a watch brand, I forget, but it was very interesting in how a luxury brand can also be created based on where you can find their advertisement and, and their marketing. So a great segue into that is where do you see kind of in the future luxury going? And then expand upon this idea of renting a luxury experience and where you see that in the future. If you remember correctly, we really met and talked for the first time right before the pandemic when I was speaking at one of your big events. And I was speaking about creativity and how that attracts emotions back then. But you and I, most people don't like to talk about macro and microeconomics. And you and I talked for an hour about that. I'm like, wow, he gets it, you know, especially in real estate. Look at what the Fed chair is doing, and it's really disrupting the real estate industry. They knew it would happen. 
all in the facts of to bringing down this tenacious inflation. I think luxury in the world has both been gaining traction and growing at the same time, mostly with existing luxury brands that were built over hundreds of years, with the exception of a few, like Apple is a luxury brand. Tesla is a luxury brand. There's luxury service brands now. One of the luxury service brands that I was instrumental in helping build was First Relic Bank. It was probably the best luxury service brand, and we did everything from their marketing, their advertising, their positioning, along with the incredible CEO, Jim Herbert. And we, we even redesigned, because design is, I design things for behavior, not just that they look pretty. It's like, what behavior do I want this to do? We redesigned their lobbies. Those types of luxury brands now are becoming more difficult. It's because of the global economic forum where the middle class, especially in the U.S., is shrinking. Most luxury purchases, U.S. make the most luxury purchases. Second is China. And China was really hurt because they were loath to get out of the pandemic because they just didn't use the best vaccines and they did lockdowns too long and they didn't do any herd immunity. So it's really hurt their economy. And I don't think they're going to bounce back soon. So I think luxury in the short term is going to slow off until we fix the inequities of, of, of we're seeing a, a vastly shrinking middle class. You're going to go. And that's why over the past 10, 15 years, and I have even done it, so I've never owned real estate. I love homes. I love interior design. I've designed people's homes. I've designed lobbies before. But for me to buy an expensive piece of real estate, it taxed me to that place and it taxed me that I have to have X amount of income. So I usually rent and I do that for the freedom of being able to invest more time in other things, right? But I love luxury places. So I can go stay in a five-star hotel. I can go get an Airbnb, but luxury for me, Josh, is I would love to live on an acre property somewhere, put a concrete pad down, get an old vintage Airstream. That's luxury to me and a couple of dogs. Luxury definitions are changing. Luxury is about how you want to live your lifestyle, what you don't want to do. It's that quote from Fight Club, I don't want to do a job that I hate, to buy things I don't need, to impress people I don't want to. We're better than that. I think especially your generation and Generation Z, one right below you, are realizing that. So if they want to try a luxury car, they don't want to buy a Ferrari for three hundred fifty to five hundred thousand dollars when they can rent one for a weekend for two grand. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting and a very astute observation when it comes to not only the cost of maintenance for a luxury. For example, I was watching a video with a very famous um, Manny, uh, I forget his last name, but very famous real estate investor uh, down in uh, LA, and he has a lot of cars and he had a Bugatti, and he was talking about how. The Bugatti for an oil change was $25,000, and then it got three gallons to a mile or something like that. And that's a high cost for people to maintain that kind of a luxury experience. And I think that the experience that people want to have, which could be, you know, a very comfort experience, a fast experience, you know, an experience that basically if money was no object, they would choose, but having it be chosen at certain times when it when it matters right and not have it to take on the cost of maintaining it when you're not using it i think the renting of luxury experiences is a great point because let's say you have a bugatti i mean that's quite uh, an amazing car and it'd be a lot of fun to drive i think anybody would say yeah that would be a cool car to have if it didn't cost me anything to maintain and i could just leave it in the garage and use it when i wanted to you wouldn't use it as your daily driver obviously but in the same way, maybe, you know, you take out a Bugatti a few times a month, 
you could rent out, uh, you know, a luxury experience like you're talking about, you know, a few times a year, a few times a month or whatever that entails for you. And you don't have to incur the cost of maintaining it. And not only the cost too, but it's like, how do I want to live my lifestyle and what I want to do? So I love luxury items. I also, one of those little places right around the corner was a furniture store. And I would just go in there and, and I would sketch out like when I'm older, I want this couch. I want, you know, this and so I like to fit my lifestyle. I, I got a really good deal on a really small place right in the downtown area of San Luis Obispo. I've had it for so long, my landlord could probably get more than double the amount of rent. But I've got, in this little tiny space, I've got $40,000 of designer furniture in there because I love that. It makes me feel comfortable. I like to, in business, I like to wear really nice clothes, especially the first meetings because it's respectful. And, and around, you know, around here, if you're wearing a suit, it's like, well, am I getting served a subpoena? You know, so I don't do it too often. And I like my healthy lifestyle. So I kind of live in athletic leisure wear. Um, so I spend some money on clothes. But until I got really geeked and in, in, into being healthy, where I eat most of my own meals, I would probably go out to meals every other day, every day. And it was part of my business, too. It's like, hey, I need to be where people are seen. That's part of it. And so, you know, spending twenty five hundred, three grand on high-end meals out, it, it was a it was a choice. I cut that choice way back. And now I have nice teas and I cook the expensive food at home so I'm saving money there so now what do I want to do with my time and experiences experience is key we're going through a loneliness epidemic in this culture it's a lot of reasons but most of the reasons is technology and people aren't having the time to gather in the places so one of the ways that luxury brands have it takes a big idea to make a brand a bunch of small poor executions can kill a brand and especially a service brand. Service costs money, and soft skills are not soft skills. They're mandatory. So if you're not leading with empathy, if you're not connecting and seeing a person and actually hearing them and spending the time, they know it every time. They know it It's when it's transactional, it's off-putting. We talked about the medical industry more. It's broken. I don't care how wealthy you are. If you have to go into the hospital, you've got a robe with your rear end hanging out, and you're a marionette with things in your and you have no agency. It's fairly disheartening. They could make that experience, you know, more better, but because the insurance companies, big medicine kind of own that relationship, it's about how much we could do in the shortest amount of time. So it's disruptable. Any service industry is disreputable. And I think companies are going to have to, and individuals are going to have to saying, I need to spend more time and truly connect with people. It's an epidemic in this country, and it's your generation that can either solve it or continue it to spiral downward. Well, I think that your generation is in a position in a very unique place where you have the ability to speak with the generation that was, you know, ahead of you. And some of the experiences that they had, even just I'm thinking uh, milk delivered to your house. I mean, that's a fantastic experience. And just talking about that now, if somebody said, I get my, you know, milk from a local cow delivered to my doorstep, that would have maybe been the norm back in the day. Whereas now that really has turned into a luxury experience. And I think that oftentimes when people think about luxury or they think about branding, they think about the commodity and they think about the quality of what it is that they're getting. And that's true, especially in clothing, because you're seeing a lot of you know more plastic-based type materials being used. And the material quality has gone down in the last five years or so. And it's about profitability. I, profitability. I hate to stop in, but, yeah. but Lululemon, when they first came out, have these shirts that were great. It felt like cotton. It wasn't all polyester. The founder of that sold to a big corporation, and now it's all plastic. It feels horrible. And guess what? 
they're a huge well-known brand, but they gave another brand that makes higher quality cotton things, they gave them an opportunity to come in. There's always somebody looking for an opportunity to come at you. Today's episode is brought to you by Joshua Ferris Real Estate. Joshua and his inspired team is committed to providing a luxury service offering to each and every client every time, regardless of the price point of their property or the lifestyle one might be seeking. As a native son of the Central Coast, Joshua Ferris has been recognized as one of the most reliable and trustworthy voices in real estate on the coast. Joshua Ferris Real Estate always offers his clients and the community real value, real results. It's real simple. And I think any time that you're building a luxury brand, whether it's a commodity, you're, you're providing a, a, an item, either if it's a bag or if it's a car, or if you're providing a service, and it could be, you could create a luxury service as a car mechanic, right? And you can, you can just add a few things that really create an experience that people remember. And I know for me, building my brand as a real estate broker and with my team, and the main thought that I've had is there's a few things that are going to set you apart from the competition, so to speak. And if you do those few things right, and you really hone in on those, you're going to be remembered for it. And in the same way, if you go to your mechanic, let's say, and they have the coffee machine there, you're going to remember that small little thing and you're going to speak positively about them. It goes back to that reputation. If you create a luxury experience for people and you have a good quality product, that really goes a long way and you create advocates for you. And kind of in the same way that a lot of, like say, fashion brands might have very large logos on their shirts higher end might not have as many logos because the ultra wealthy don't want they don't want and and the whole reason that logos started coming on was american sports Mm. and and national and they started with golf tournaments first like okay from every angle we have to see that tiger's wearing a nike and then it devolved and then kids started going i want these logos i want this out there but i like simple non-logo items but it's back to i want to give a shout out because I had a mechanic when I was really young, Don Peters Automotive in San Luis Obispo. He might be retired now. He would work on old Chevy Boleros. He didn't work at the time. He only worked on American cars. I think he changed that. But if you went into his shop back before everybody was doing he would wear gloves like surgeons would. You can eat off of the floor of his place. He was the most kind, charming man in the town. And for the first two years, he always gave me my parts back. and was like, here's what I did. I'm like, Don, I, I trust you, man. I don't, I don't need the parts. And he just built a reputation among the community of not only being the best mechanic around, but he cared about people. He really cared about people. And, and yes, you can say, well, here's our intention. Here's where our culture, we have to do that. But you can also do it on an individual basis, right? It's like, hey, I need to treat people this way. I mean, I think this area is such a small area. There's some great restaurants here. There's no excellent service in this region. They don't train for it. There's a high turnover. They want young people. You go into bigger cities and go into a really high-end five-star restaurant, there is service there, but service costs. And so around here, my assumption would be service doesn't pay out because people's expectations for service are lowered. But whenever I talk about brands, and I, we talk, discussed emotions earlier, people don't remember what you said always. They don't, might not remember what you did. They always, they always remember how you made them feel. And I mean, that's really in what it's about. You know, it's like, how do I make people feel? And then when you talk about luxury goods, people think fashion, watches. Women have diamonds. 
right? You know, it's like, especially in America. And I can talk about De Beers is probably one of the best brand marketing things that's ever existed. People covet what is is scarce, you know? So you need to think of all those things when you're purchasing a brand. Because something's ubiquitous doesn't mean it's great, you know? Everybody thought, well, when the internet comes and all these things, you're not going to need middlemen anymore. We need middlemen and advisors now more than ever because most marketing and 100% on food is just disinformation. I I know I did it. I spin it to the best possible thing for my clientele. Most of the big tech companies, look at They have planned obsolescence and they don't want to talk to anybody. They want to have an enclosed ecosystem, right? So there is no service. There's an opportunity there. I hate tech. Our audio engineer right now in the other room, Gino, who's listening to this right now, I met him. He worked at the Mac Superstore. I, tech freaks me out. If Apple did something where they had like a fee where it's like you spend 500 a year and it's $100 every time you call up and they can fix something remotely for you, I would pay that in a heartbeat. But they want to keep labor costs down. They're impacting their brand. They don't know it. Or they don't care because their profits are so... I mean, Apple's the first $3 trillion company, you know? So they've made other decisions. But I've worked on and off with Apple since 97. I think you make a great point, and I would encourage, especially with the differentiation factor going on right now, that anybody who has a company or has a business or is providing a service to lean into a higher quality, more luxury experience, even if you think that you are providing that, always be thinking, how can you just do something additional that your, your customers or potential customers might like? And I think a key component of that is asking them, what would you like? What would make this experience better for you? More perfect, higher quality, more convenient. And then focusing uh, on that and making that happen because I I think you're right. Uh, Service is not where it maybe used to be. And there are great ways to differentiate yourself and your brand. And like you talked about, once you have a brand uh, developed, it can be now uh, an advocate for you to continually propagate your reputation with every person that came into contact with you. And if they had a positive interaction and were given great quality service, whatever, if you're selling a product, they had great product from you, they're going to be an advocate for you. You're going to be telling everybody else. And if you try and focus less on keeping your costs down, yeah, you might win in the short term, but in the long term, it might make more sense to maybe be at a higher price if that's what needs to happen, but maintain those standards and the quality because once that quality starts to slip, once you go to a restaurant and the meal isn't very good, that now is going to distinguish and tarnish your brand and your reputation. And I think that that is very difficult to recapture when it comes to reputation. And I think you really made the great point is that brand, especially luxury brands in throughout the world and whatever it is, it's high quality reputation and consistency is if you take, let's say, Gucci might be a good example. If you take Gucci and you know that they have high quality products and then they start to maybe, let's say, sell Gucci at Target or Walmart and you start saying, wait a second, this is a different tier. This might have the same name. It might say that it's Gucci, but if it doesn't have the quality of craftsmanship or materials, quickly you could take that brand and turn it into something that it's that Weren't not, you born in around 1990? 89. 89. So... That's about the time that those big outlet malls came in. And the outlet malls came in because you've got these luxury manufacturers, Gucci, Anne Klein, Yves Saint Laurent, you know, 
they'll have their seconds or something that wasn't quite quality, and then they'd ship it to the outlet stores, and then people could buy them for 50% off. You know, poor people would say, I got a Gucci bag. Then what they did, and I don't think that they realized at the time, because so many people that run companies go to business school. Business school is mostly accountants. They started out that way. And their numbers cost guys. They're not social psychologists, which is what you have to be as a brand person. You know, it's, it's about psychology. And so they start doing that. And then they said, you know what? Let's just make Gucci products, not seconds, but for, for that store. And they thought, it's like, well, it's like giving people free drugs. They'll come back. They'll get addicted. They'll come back and they'll upgrade. But what they really did was they lowered the reputation of the brand. You know, remember, brands can be anywhere from 35 to 100% more but your marketing costs are more, your material costs are more, your labor costs are more. You have to earn those costs. And say you're at a really fancy restaurant. That fancy restaurant, if you have uh, one server that's having a bad day, can kill your brand. So you need to be walking that floor, looking at faces, you know, not looking at the spreadsheet going, we did 100 covers, you know, we're okay. That's part of the job, a smaller part than I think it would go. I've got two examples of price. One was a wine friend of mine, and one was a therapist friend of mine. And the therapist friend of mine, this is 20-something years ago, I went in, I saw her, and she was a little bit frazzled, and everybody loved her. And she goes, I'm like, what's wrong? And she said, you know, I've got like a dozen clients, and I just don't have any time, and I want to give them this. And I said, well, what do you want to do with your more time? I was like, well, maybe hire somebody. I said, okay, well, I'll help you craft a letter, and then tomorrow you tell your clients you have to raise your prices 45%. It's like, what about 10%? I'm like, 45%. She goes, well, I'll lose clients. I'm like, you might lose three. She lost one. She was able to hire somebody, you know. And it was just about giving her time and going, you can't do all this. Your service offering is degrading. Your health is degrading. You need help. You need to charge for the feelings that you're providing. She did that. She never kind of looked back. And she wasn't a client. She was a friend. Another friend of mine, because I think we've talked before, I did a lot of work in the like high-end echelons of the wine industry. And of course, some of my friends here were some of the biggest winemakers that were in Sideways and whatnot. And I met this man, Paul Lotto. Paul Lotto left Poland and he went to Montreal and he became a sommelier in a really high-end restaurant. And he just loved wine. He started serving Robert Parker there, which was the person who invented the 100-point score. He liked that. He decided, you know what? I want to start making my own wine. So he left this really great job, came to the Central Coast and worked as a cellar rat for wineries, Jim Clendenin Winery, Obon Clement down in you know, Santa Maria Valley. And he had these barrels and all these big wine guys like, oh, yeah, have your wine at, you know, 20 bucks. Start off at nineteen ninety nine and whatnot. And I'm like, and he goes, what do you think I should do? I'm like, I had a better palate back then, but I tasted wine. And I said, you know, I'm like, who has tasted this wine? He goes, Parker tasted this wine. Robert Parker tasted your wine. I'm like, what do you say? He goes, oh, it's going to be high 90s. I'm like, charge $50 a bottle. He goes, all these other winemakers say that it's not right. I'm like, I'm the guy they come to, the big guys, to tell them what to charge. He did that. He never went down. It's almost impossible to lower your prices and raise them. And so by doing both of those things, both of those individuals made a decision upon the advice I gave them, I'm going to be a luxury brand. It's hard. Then they have to maintain that quality. They have to maintain that their employees that they're hiring deliver as well or better than they did. It's a hard road to hoe, but the financial rewards and the rewards for repeat business is invaluable. I think you're going to reap the rewards with all of those happy customers that are going to be telling everybody about their experience with interacting with you. 
So I'd love to get your, you know, a little bit of a story before we wrap up here. And this is one thing that I wanted to ask. You had the chance to interact with the Apple CEO, Steve Jobs. And I just would be curious if you could share, you know, just something that maybe stuck with you as far as being a component that helped them shape their brand. What was something that Steve mentioned to you that you appreciated? I was in bigger meetings and CEOs liked me usually because I was a truth teller and I didn't spin things and, and I didn't talk a lot until I really kind of had a figure on it. So I was invited to these things. Steve Jobs was a bit of a megalomaniac. He wasn't a nice man very often. But what he had was a vision. And he had a vision where technology was beige boxes with a bunch of engineers. He said, this could be easier. This could be more simple. And with Steve Wozniak and him starting, that's what they did. But they were going into a new industry, so they took the same beige boxes. They really changed the software programs in the beginning. And some people say they made a mistake. Microsoft kind of rolled over Steve Jobs because they had a closed system, because Steve's like, I don't want anybody changing things. Microsoft had an open system, and they kind of sped past. Then Steve brought in a CEO to run the company. The CEO was a CMO of Pepsi, and he goes, oh, you make sugar water. That's really what it was. I don't think that CEO got luxury. He just wanted to move the needle a little bit. And they fired Steve Jobs. He was livid. He built that company. I bought my first Apple in 91 when I went to school because I'm not a tech guy. I want something easy. I've stayed with them ever since. I've got a love-hate relationship because I know when they're doing something wrong. But Steve Jobs, I think, key was he wasn't a designer, but he understood and loved design at heart. I think that you and I have that same thing in common. And he brought on Johnny Ive. And then Johnny Ive came through. Now, it wasn't Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs poo-pooed the phone forever. And they started something with the Newton. You know, at Newton didn't do anything. But the Newton led to the, the music player, the MP player. Then it led to the phone. The phone is a luxury good that they sell like Toyotas, but the margins are like Ferraris. And then just the iPods, that's a Fortune 50 company. So I think he was pressing enough to saying we could make the experience of technology simpler and give people luxury products. Now, they made some missteps. In 97, when they came out with those Bondi blue things, when Steve Jobs came back, brought Johnny Ive on, my apartment in San Francisco was really high end and it had luxury furnishings and I didn't want a Bondi blue computer staring off. It wasn't until, and I even told them, I'm like, until you guys do something in black or gray or like a cool metal, I'm not putting it in my house. It's going to stay in the office, you know, with everything. And they slowly started to change and look at what they have now, titanium. Titanium is really expensive. If they got rid of the titanium went to plastic, there would be a revolt that you'd never seen before. You know, so I think that he was visionary in that way and that he knew when not to cave in. I was at one of the big meetings where all the vendors were there when he said that he was going to go into retail. And back then, nobody wanted to go into retail because it's like it's expensive. We have to get retail space. Retail is really hard to do. But if you went and bought Apple back in the day, you either went to a university like I did in a bookstore and people don't really know or it's in the back of Best Buy. It just they didn't own the experience. By starting their own retail stores, they own the experience. And guess what is why they're a luxury item. About 10 years ago, they surpassed Tiffany's as what they sold. And Tiffany's was at the lead back then. Square footage-wise, in luxury goods, they beat Tiffany per square foot. Wow. So I think that he got on something. And guess what? Since the death of the malls and, and all of that, most luxury branded goods 
have their own retail outlets. Why? Because they can control the entire experience. They make flagship stores in Tokyo, Beverly Hills, New York. Those are tourist meccas. Now, what's changed in the economy is Chinese and, and Japanese and people from Asia would get first-class round-trip tickets here, either the Bay Area or Beverly Hills. They would buy tens of thousands of dollars of goods and fly back, and they would save money because they were much cheaper here than buying them in China, and they could just get a free trip out of it. Now, China's having worse economic problems than we are right now, so it's slowed down, but they're not going away. You know, there's more billionaires in the United States than anywhere else. There's only about 200 less in China. So I don't think the billionaire class is going away anytime soon. The billionaire class really needs to understand that they're taking so much, they're killing the cow, which is the middle class, right? They're killing the cow of disposable income, which means it's going to be harder to sell luxury item goods. And people are going to start looking for luxury experiences. And that's what branded good companies are talking. It's like, I'm sure that you and your fiance might want to go up to Big Sur, camp out, hike around in the woods for a while, then get back, you know, to our small community and do that, then go stay in Beverly Hills at a four-star hotel and, and rent a car because you're experiencing. So all these big, massive branded good companies, even Apple, they've got to be aware of those threats lurking around out there. Elon Musk needs to be aware that what he says on Twitter is hurting the golden goose, which is Tesla, right? Tesla was started by Elon Musk bought a company that already existed, he kind of took that over. He was a great product marketer. Great. Brilliant. And all the, everybody was fighting him. He started up and he sold it to progressives that didn't want to drive an ugly Prius, that wanted some style and wanted something. Got money from the government. He built this brand. And then he started castigating the people that bought the car. I don't like progressive. I don't like this. It's a really interesting time that we're all in these tribes. And old marketing values used to be, we want a bigger tent. Now it's like if you say one thing, you can go. And this is a new phenomenon. Very new. Big marketers and branders have to contend with. And I think, uh, I think it's going to be a challenge moving forward. I think it's going to be a challenge moving forward. And I think it's going to require even more wisdom and more thoughtfulness when it comes to branding and marketing and especially connecting with the right audience. And, you know, I was kind of thinking recently Abercrombie and Fitch has left San Luis Obispo and how they were an iconic brand for kind of creating sort of a luxury experience for teenagers, let's say, you know, mid, mid 20 year olds. And their brand has changed over the years, and they weren't able to you know, keep up with the times in a way. As we wrap up here, what is a brand or a company, let's just say brand, what's a brand to keep our eye on in the next five years? What brand is exciting you? Hmm, that's interesting. I think, um, and they're just not around as much, but one of the brands that I'm most impressed with, and I have to think a little more about uh, current brands, was Cirque du Soleil. I mean, they were a circus that just had acrobats, no animals, because people are saying we don't like to keep animals that way, right? You know, we're seeing it's like we're doing horrible things to animals. This is unhealthy. Tigers whipping them, these elephants that are raging off. And, and these people from Canada started this brand. Cirque du Soleil brand is one of the most wealthy experiential brands in the world. And other circuses like Circus Vargas, which is visiting the Central Coast right today as we're talking about, they went, you know, we need to get rid of the animals too. It's not okay anymore to do that. It's just not right. And you brought up Wexler, who hired Epstein to be his financial person, owned Victoria's Secret, owned Abercrombie & Fitch, owned Bed Bath & Beyond. 
they really were of the era of beauty and sex sells, you know, and there's all kinds of documentaries that show this. My son got offered a job at Abercrombie and Fitch because he was super handsome. They wanted to put him out front. The people that weren't quite as good looking were in the back. You know, it was classism, but we can talk about beauty. The first thing a baby sees is a human face. We're wired that. Babies that are three months old, before there's any culture, will look at an attractive, which is usually a proportion face, four times longer than an average face. So Wexler and things were right by going, okay, this is what our biology says and we could do that. But then the women's movement kind of kicked in, the Me Too movement kicked in, and like, we're tired of being sex objects. We had a little bit enough of that. And then the Epstein struggles came and the money came, and that just killed a brand behemoth in a couple of years. A brand behemoth. Well, Wexler's brand, all those companies, the ecosystem, it was about treating models badly. It was about taking advantage of people. And now you can't hide from things like that. You know, I, I think that I don't have a brand per se to look at right now because there's so many. I like some of the new electric vehicle brands that are coming up that are competing with uh, Tesla. Tesla is still doing some great things. They just, they became the de facto standard for charging now. So they own the rails now. You know, all the other companies are going to have to make them fit their Tesla charging stations. They own the gas stations now. Um, I'll tell you my favorite So it's brand. interesting. Yeah, that's I want to hear yours. Yeah. So my favorite brand is actually these shoes that I'm wearing right now, On Running. These are my On Clouds. And I believe they're now worth $11 billion. And it was either Federer or one of those top athletes that has signed with them. And I like the brand, especially now because they're taking on the big brands like Nike, Reebok, that have been around shoe brands for so long. And I think if there's any takeaway from this is that there's always change. The only thing sure is change. And if maybe you loved Abercrombie and Fitch back in the day, but you you know wanted to tweak it a little bit, there's opportunity for any entrepreneur, whether or not you want to get into the space of running shoes. There are Nikes, there are Reeboks, there are Adidas, and they'll be around. But some brand like On Running, they really have taken on a good chunk, a good piece of the pie by correctly branding, having great design, having great quality materials. Yeah, the price is a little bit more, but I've noticed everybody who wears them that I walk by and then I say, hey, how do you like your new shoes when I'm wearing mine? They, I love them. I love them. They're worth the price and I'll buy them again. And I think that is really interesting. And I love to see those underdog stories of brands going against those other very long-time brands that have been around a long time. I love it too because it keeps the long brands on their toes as well. One thing that I think, it's not a brand per se, but a category I'm watching, is U.S. healthcare and then the satellite businesses that are around those. And if you listen to podcasts about health, nutrition, human performance, longevity, there's some personality brands like Dr. Peter Atia, Andrew Huberman that are coming in. And if you look here on the Central Coast, something that I'm involved with, some doctors and some patients like me want to take our medical back from the insurance companies and back from that, and they're going into more of concierge personalized medicine. That's an area to watch. Things are going to change rapidly with all the newness of what's happening in medicine and how they're making it personalized, I would watch that space. Might be a good timing for my brother who just graduated and got his medical Tell him to call there. me. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Michael, for taking the time. Uh, where can people find you? Once a week meeting with you. But okay. besides that, they can find me on LinkedIn, LinkedIn, Michael Dunn brand, if you type it in. And then my website, I don't really use my website for much. I'm going to be rebuilding my website probably next year. It's Dunn, D-U-N-N brand, B-R-A-N-D.com. And I'm fairly regular on Dave Congleton's radio program at KVEC 920 AM. I talk about business brands and economic issues there. 
Thanks for taking the time. Thank you. I enjoyed myself. Today was a blast. You've been listening to the Slow Style Podcast with Joshua Ferris. Written and executive produced by Joshua Ferris. Written, produced, and engineered by Gino Rios for R&D Studios. Music provided by Gypsy Baritone, Lowfly, and The Archaics. Special thanks goes out to today's guest and to you, our loyal listener. See you next time on The Slow Style.